Thanks for joining us online today. It's the first Sunday in February and we've already gathered at both Bensville and Tumby with an all-in family gathering. And can I encourage you, if you're able to be with us in the first Sunday next month, then to come and do that because what we do, we pray together, we worship together, we have communion together and morning tea together. And it's something that we're, we're really passionate about having all ages, all people be involved um, and we've already been part of that today. But as you're joining us now, what we want to do, because we didn't actually bring a sermon or a message at this All In Gathering, in the first Sunday of each month, we want to bring to you one of our foundational messages out of the last couple of years. As we've stopped and really sought God with His direction and His leading for us as a church, we've been able to speak into that over the last couple of years. And we want to share with you one of those messages today that has been really foundational and helped um, give us direction and pointing us in the direction God is leading us. So I hope you enjoy it and uh, we'll be with you again next week as we continue our John series. We'll see you then. Well, thank you for joining us today, for making the choice to, to tune in online. You've, uh, you've joined us, as you've heard, at the start of a brand new series called Deep and Wide. And it's all about going deep in the Christian life so that we can go wide. It's about exploring and grounding our lives in deep truth so that we would live wide and expansive lives. We would bear fruit. We would stretch out into every facet of life and business and art and community in a manner that is unusually grounded in truth. And it's a series about us individually. It's, a, it's about me personally. It's about you personally. It's also a series about, about the body, about the church with a capital C, what the New Testament calls the, the ecclesia, the gathering of the people of God. And it's a series for us to pay attention to for our own church community with a little c here at Coast Community Church. I like how Andy Stanley writes about, about this in his book uh, by the same name, Deep and Wide. And, and yes, we've taken some inspiration there. He says this, healthy local churches can be, should be both deep and wide. It's not either or, it's both and. Local churches should be characterised by deep roots and wide reaches. Churches should be theologically sound and culturally relevant. So we're going to start today by going deep. We want to look at the foundations of this deep and wide life. And firm foundations, they have a number of qualities about them if they're going to be reliable, if they're going to be durable, if they're going to do their job. If they're worthy to build upon, yes, they have to be deep. Yes, they have to be stable, but they also have to be square. They have to be level. They have to be true. You know, the week before last, uh, my wife, Shelley, she'd, she'd been out shopping. She'd been maintaining appropriate social distancing, I'm sure. Uh, and when she came home, she hit the garage door button in the car, drove in, uh, got out of the car, got everything out of the car, hit the garage door button, and this almighty groan and crunch and creak of twisting metal echoed through the house. And Shelley went running back into the garage and I was in the office near the garage and I jumped out and ran out. And this is the site that we saw. Our garage door at a horrible angle and twisted aluminium and 
not great. So I did my best to see if I could try to fix the thing, but that didn't get very far. It was obvious pretty soon that this was a job that was beyond me. And so, so I rang a couple of places and, and, you know, praise God, Todd was able to come out. Big shout out to Affordable Openings. Thank you and thank you, Todd. You saved us that day. Um, but Todd came out and he said, look, I reckon I can fix that. And he, I didn't know how he was going to fix it. It looked like a complete mess to me. Um, but within a half an hour, he actually had the thing back on and, and going again. And he explained to me that, you know what, it wasn't a problem with the door. The door was actually fine. It wasn't a problem with the rails. The rails were all fine. It wasn't a problem with the door opener. Certainly wasn't a problem with the operator. It turns out that it was an, an alignment problem. And he showed me, he said, look, your garage floor on this side is, it's like four and a half centimetres lower than your garage door on that side. And your garage door's been going up and down out of alignment for 15 years. And then all of a sudden, bang. Builders know that they need to pay attention to levels. Ours might not have. But alignment is important. If the construction is going to last, if something is going to be fit for purpose, then it needs to be level. It needs to be aligned, aligned vertically, aligned horizontally, and it needs to stay that way. Because if it doesn't, things go wrong. When things are out of alignment, we call them, we call them wonky, we call them skewy, they're out of whack. We just know that they're not going to do their job properly. And so we have set squares and spirit levels and laser guides. And we put things to the test so that we can align everything up front to make sure that they're straight, to make sure that they're, they're true. And you and I are the same. And, and so is the church as a whole. And we've seen what happens when our own lives are out of alignment. And history tells of far too many dark days when the church has not been well grounded, when it's not been well aligned, when its foundations have been compromised or even abandoned. Our vision for Coast Community speaks about a particular kind of church, the kind of body that God has in mind. And we take this from Ephesians chapter 4. We'll pick it up at verse 15. It says, each of us are growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. This is our vision. This is our ambition. We want to be a local expression of Jesus, of his body, healthy and growing and full of love. And we know that this is God's project. It's not our project. It's a, it's a project that transcends our material reality. And so we partner with him in building his church. And the Bible uses a number of metaphors to describe this project. Uh, because when we deal with things that are transcendent, metaphor is all we've got to convey some kind of truth. So we read about the body of Christ with all of the parts fitting together. We read about the vine and the branches and the branches needing to abide in the vine. And we read about the temple made of living stones. And each of these images, each of these metaphors speaks of some expanding 
but unified whole where each individual finds its place, finds its pattern, finds its alignment in Christ. And it's the idea of Christ as the cornerstone, the cornerstone of the temple, the foundation stone from which every other stone is aligned with is what we're going to explore today. So the church was was a vision in the mind of God since before time, before creation. Right back in Genesis 17, we can see that God is first announcing that he intends to gather a people to himself. That's his project. The word church, however, it doesn't appear in Scripture until the New Testament. Uh, and Jesus uses it for the first time, not long after he feeds the 4,000. And what we read as church is a translation of the Greek word ecclesia, which actually means a gathering of people for a purpose, a congregation. And the scene where Jesus first uses this word, it's captured in Matthew 16, uh, verses 15 to 18. It's after a bunch of miracles and Jesus is the talk of the town and he's, he's asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they reply, some say he's John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus wants to know what they think. He says, who do you say that I am? And the shy one, Simon Peter, answered. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus is announcing that he intends to carry on to bring to completion his father's project of gathering a people, an ecclesia. And Jesus engages in some really clever wordplay here that, that has confused the church beautifully over the centuries. Jesus uses Simon's nickname, Peter or Petrus, which actually means the stone. He says, you are Petrus, you are a stone. And then Jesus uses the word Petra, which means rock, when he says, upon this Petra, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the confusion is the idea that Peter is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. And while it is true that Peter is absolutely a foundational figure in the early church, it is not true to say that Peter is the rock upon which Jesus built his church. It is also true that when, when Jesus cleverly speaks this way, that Peter's confession, his revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, that upon that confession that Jesus will build his church, that is true. It's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for Coast Community. It is only upon that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we are on solid ground. However, the ultimate truth of Jesus' clever wordplay is that when he declares on this rock, I will build my church, he was referring to himself. Jesus himself is the rock. In outrageous humility, Jesus says, I will build my church on the rock, solid 
truth that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you, Peter, because of your confession, you are a stone, one of the very first set into place on the rock of Christ. And because the ecclesia is established on the rock, it will not be overcome. Look at how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. He says, he says this, together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. And we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Do you see it? God is gathering his people and building a living temple established on the cornerstone of Jesus. Listen to Peter, Peter himself. This is like 30 years after Jesus asked him that question, who do you say I am? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, um, he says this, he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Jesus is quoting, uh, rather Peter is quoting Isaiah here. And Peter is saying that what the prophet wrote 700 years earlier is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So let's take a look at, at what Isaiah wrote. Let's get a bit of uh, a better idea of what this cornerstone image is all about. So we're looking at Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 and the first part of verse 17. And Isaiah writes this, he says, So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I'll make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. So here's the sovereign, eternal creator, God. And he says, come and take a look. I'm at work. I'm building something and I'm building it in Zion. And Zion, we know, is the hill upon which the earthly city of Jerusalem is built. But it's also in scripture, we see that it's the city of God, the eternal holy city in the kingdom of heaven, there's this idea that Zion is somehow both present on earth and in the kingdom of heaven. It is the holy place where the eternal presence and reign and order of God is not compromised. And it's in this place that somehow bridges heaven and earth that God lays this stone, a tested stone. It's not just any stone. This, this stone has been put to the test and it has passed. And we place value on things that have been tested. They're more likely to be reliable. They're more likely to do their job. I'm one of those people, and it turns out that I'm, I'm, I'm not alone in this, but there's plenty of people who don't, who don't subscribe to this kind of thing, that I'm one of those people that when I buy something, I kind of read all the reviews. 
I don't want to, to go and make an investment in something that might let me down until I know what it is that, that other people have experienced, whether it's about a dishwasher or, or a mattress or a restaurant or a car or an airline or a charity. I want to know that something has been tested. And if God is going to test something, you can bet that it's been tested thoroughly. This stone has been tried and it's been tested by God and it has passed. It has not failed under pressure. Not only is it tested, but it's also precious. A quick Google of what, a, what it means to, uh, to be a precious stone, like what are the qualities that determine whether a stone is precious or not, reveals three tests, three qualities. A stone has to be beautiful. It has to be hard or, or durable and it has to be rare. A precious stone must display all three of those qualities. It can't just be high on two and low on, on, on another one. Um, it has to be all three. If this is the stone that the sovereign Lord has called precious, then it must be the most beautiful. It must be the most durable or lasting and it must be the rarest of all. And in fact, of course, it's the only one. It is the tested and precious cornerstone. Wikipedia is actually really helpful here to help us understand what this idea of a cornerstone is. Uh, it says that a cornerstone, the foundation stone or the setting stone, is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. Get this. All other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. The cornerstone is the perfectly true, the perfectly aligned corner by which every single other stone takes its reference. It is perfect, perfectly vertical. It is perfectly horizontal and it is aligned perfectly on the land where it's positioned. And I think what's, what's fascinating about this is that it's a relational concept. The idea is that all other stones are in right relationship with the cornerstone and that the cornerstone is in right relationship with its absolute bearings. It stands then that if the cornerstone is out of whack, then so is every other stone. But because this stone is both tested and it's precious, we can have confidence in it that it is a sure foundation. It's going to do its job. It's accurate. It's aligned. It's strong. If you're going to build something to last, build on this stone. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic, will never be dismayed, will never be shaken. Because it is tested, because it is precious and sure, you won't be let down. This foundation is rock solid. It is eternal. It is aligned. Peter said it like this. Remember, he said that the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And I have to confess that there is a sense of shame when your garage door looks like this. And also there is a sense of panic. Just ask Shelley. But here's why you won't be put to shame. Isaiah writes that God will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. 
It's against the dimensions. It's against the absolutes of justice and righteousness that God aligns this stone. See, when God is building something in Zion, he doesn't align it with with earthly dimensions or measure it along earthly scales. He is not constrained by our three-dimensional limitations. He doesn't rely on rulers and spirit levels and set squares. The kingdom of God is not squared off by such things. Isaiah wants us to see that the ultimate determination of alignment, of being true, of being right, is not our material dimensions of degrees and and centimetres and north and south, but it's the cosmic and eternal dimensions of justice and righteousness. What What does that mean? Why are justice and righteousness so important? The way these words justice and righteousness, the way they're used in the Old Testament and particularly by the prophets and by the psalmists is that they convey perfect relationship with the divine order, right relationship with ultimate reality. And he will make justice the measuring line. The Hebrew word here is mishpat. And in its, in its daily use, it means case or decision, judge, proper, law. But when mishpat is used in relation to God, it means for all things to be functioning according to his perfect or holy legislative, judicial and executive authority. It is God's law properly lived out. It is the application of God's perfect order between us. This cornerstone is just. It exists in perfect alignment with God's order. And this is our horizontal alignment, justice. And he will make righteousness the plumb line. So these two words, mishpat and tzedekah, and which were is translated as righteousness. It's interesting, these words can can be translated interchangeably. Each word can be translated as either justice or righteousness, depending on the context. And in this instance, righteousness is the translation of sedekah, which means accurate, fair, just, or right. But in relation to God, sedekah is the right ordering of relations between God, people, and things. It is our vertical alignment, all things in perfect relationship with God himself. This is the end game. This perfect vertical alignment is what makes the horizontal alignment possible. Perfect relationship with God, righteousness, makes possible perfect relationship with everything else, justice. Love God, love others would say the same thing. It is the fullness of the law. The psalmist writes in Psalm 89 verse 14 that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Justice and righteousness are the legal and relational dimensions of the kingdom of God. Everything aligned in right relationship with the order of 
of our triune God. And this cornerstone is sovereignly aligned in perfect relationship with the creator vertically and in right relationship with all creation horizontally. This cornerstone is the precious, reliable, eternal reference point. And God is building his church on the sure foundation and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is the sure foundation. Christ alone, cornerstone. Now, just thinking about this idea uh, from an individual perspective for a minute, you know, there are, there are lots of cornerstones, other absolutes that we try to align our lives with, but we know that they will ultimately let us down. We try to measure our, our, ourselves along the lines of, of money or fame or skills or intelligence or health or power or independence. Or, or perhaps we've just given up on those things and we align ourselves with failure or weakness or sin or rejection. And we, we try to locate our identity and our purpose in these things, but they were never meant for that. They're just not up to the task. They're not tested they're not precious. They're not sure. And the truth is, and, and we know it, that when we try to align ourselves with such measures, we will ultimately be stricken with panic. We will ultimately be put to shame. And even though Christians, even though Christians know that Christ is the cornerstone, we're sometimes tempted to go deep in other places, to look for foundations elsewhere and here are a few temptations and you might be surprised by this and I think the biggest one potentially is the Bible itself the Bible is not the cornerstone the Bible points to Jesus Jesus himself says this in in John 5 verse 39 he says you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life but these are the very scriptures that testify about me yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. You can go deep in scripture and you should, but be careful not to confuse the book with the person and make an idol out of the Bible, which is what the Pharisees did. Maybe another temptation is to go deep into good works, but this is the social justice problem. This is where we're, we're trying to, to get the horizontal bit right, but without being squared off in relationship with God. Or maybe it's the morality um, temptation, and this is the self-righteousness problem, trying to use our own behaviour to be in right relationship with God. But sin management is not the right foundation, and yet I think all of us try. And what about ritual, baptism, communion, worship, attendance, tithing? If I do all of this stuff, then I'll be on solid ground and this stuff will align me with God. Or perhaps theology. And, you know, diving deep into, into good theological stuff is brilliant, most of it. But only Christ is the cornerstone. And we do need to be aware that there are some theological rabbit trails that seem to be a great temptation to go deep, but they have a habit of breeding disunity rather than alignment, pulling the stones apart. 
topics like end times and angels and demons and predestination and other really interesting topics, they can work their way to the center of somebody's faith so that we define ourselves based on our theological position and risk displacing Christ. All of these things, the the Bible, good works, morality, ritual, and so on, ideally these things serve to strengthen our foundation in Christ. They increase our alignment with Jesus. At the same time, they might be the fruit of an already strong foundation, the outworking of a life in increasing alignment with Jesus himself. But let's be super clear. These things as good as they are, are not the foundation. Christ alone is the cornerstone. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 is pretty clear that that Christ has no peer in this regard. He writes that all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus' closest friend, the Apostle John, he writes this in Revelation 22. He says that he, that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The doctor and the historian Luke in the book of Acts, he says that in him all things live and move and have their being. And the the writer of the book of Hebrews, very likely a female author, She writes in Hebrews 1 that he is the maker and sustainer of all things. And Jesus himself says in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. Everything else finds its place in relation to Christ. And finally, back to Peter while he's in prison. He's being questioned about in whose name the sick are being healed. It's a pretty good time to fess up if he's not been telling the truth. It's in Acts 4, verse 11 and 12. Peter responds to those questioning him. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There is no other name, no other way, no other truth, no other life. Not the Bible, not tradition, not baptism, not theology, not the church, not self-help, not success, not money, not good looks, not Allah, not Buddha, not Baal, not Caesar, and certainly not being good. Salvation is found nowhere else. So build on this foundation. Align your life with this cornerstone because the one who trusts in him will never be dismayed, will never be put to shame. So for the love of God, get to know Jesus and align yourself with him. So here is our question. Is Jesus my cornerstone or is he? And pardon the cliche, I'm really sorry about this. Or is he just another brick in my wall? Is he the absolute measure against which everything else is aligned? Or is he just another factor in how I choose to align or construct my life? 
or thinking about the church, the ecclesia. Am I a living stone fitting together with all of the saints, all of the brothers and sisters in the temple of God against the cornerstone of Christ? Am I part of what he is building or is he just relegated to a part of what I'm building? I think it comes back to the same question that Jesus asked the the disciples. And he's asking you and I the same question. Who do you say that I am? You see, our answer to this question will reveal whether or not Christ is our cornerstone or just another brick in the wall. If your answer is that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, he is the way, the truth and the life, then you have no rational option but to align your life with his in right relationship with God and in right relationship with all of creation. If your answer is that he is just another brick in the wall, then you know what? I applaud your honesty. And I pray that like Peter, that our Father in heaven would reveal to you the truth about his son. So let me pray. Father, we do want to give you thanks that indeed you have placed a sure cornerstone in the person of Jesus that we can align our lives with, that we construct our lives upon, that is not bound by our material reality, but is anchored in the absolutes of eternity. Right relationship with you, right relationship with one another. Father, I ask that you would give us that gift, that blessing of an increasing revelation of who you are, Lord Jesus the cornerstone and that we might align our lives with you we ask this in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit amen